For one of the best deals in town, swing by Walters for brunch. For just $20, you can add bottomless Bloody Marys, mimosas, Trulies, and Bud Lights with a purchase of an entree. Sunday, the round of 16 in the Euros gets going. Make your reservation for a busy weekend at waltersdc.com slash reservation. When you do come to Walters, make sure to check out their spicy chicken. Cold beer, a great sandwich with fries, and a big screen TV is a tough combo to beat. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the pitch, swinging a fly ball into deep left center field. Won't have to worry about it now. This ball is going, going, and gone. Goodbye. And Austin Riley has connected for a two-run home run. His 26th of the year. Nobody on now here at the top of the first inning. It's Atlanta three and Washington nothing. And now Corbin into the wind three. One pitch swung on, hit of the year to deep left center field. This is way back. It's going, going, and gone. Goodbye. A two-out solo home run here in the fifth inning. Atlanta's second home run of the night. And it's now Atlanta six and Washington nothing. Three he's, balls, no He doesn't like Soto. No, these are he? big matchups. Here's the set. 3-0 delivery. Fastball inside, ball four. Oh, and Soto so, kind of stared him down. And Smith just said, go to first. Smith just waved him and said, go to first. A bases loaded walk to Soto. And that's going to be it for Will Smith. And now he just he's had a little curse word in Soto's direction. Wow. Minter sets. One ball, two strikes. The bases loaded the pitch. Swing and a miss. He struck him out with a changeup. And the game is over. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, July 16th, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, the Nats for a fourth consecutive game rallied to at least some extent. Uh, They scored at least a run in the bottom of the ninth for a fourth consecutive game. But for an eighth consecutive game, the Nats did lose. Uh, Eight for the final to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park on Friday night in game two of a four-game series. Nats have lost 14 of their last 15 games. The Nats are 1-14 and since a three-game winning streak, June 26th through the 28th. Nats now a major league worst, 30-62, and now 7-35 and against the National League East. The numbers really are jarring, and you almost become desensitized to them on a game-in, game-out basis, but this really is something. And Mark, we, after the taping of the last installment of the podcast, discussed off the air whether the Nats might actually lose 110 games this season. Quite clearly, 110 losses are in play. 100 losses is a lock. 110 losses has become the more interesting conversation. 
Here's the stat of the night from me, Al, that stood out to me, and I was surprised. I, I looked it up, did the research, and I was surprised this was true. We've lost 14 to 15, like you said. This is the first time in Nationals history that's happened within a single season. The only other time they lost 14 of 15, it was sandwiched around the end of the 2008 season and the beginning of the 2009 season. So it's never been one singular team to lose 14 out of 15 games. And I think that says it all right there about what they are. And it's just the predictability of it. Every game feels like the same thing. And you can't tell me that when they were down 3 nothing in the top of the first in this one that you didn't know how this was going to go. Even right down to the rallying in the ninth and making it interesting. That's like the last piece of the puzzle. But this is exactly who they are. It doesn't change. And I think that more than anything is the most demoralizing thing. It's one thing to lose games, go through a bad stretch or whatever. But to lose them every single night in basically the exact same manner, that to me is pretty striking and, and pretty demoralizing. We're going to get to a quote from a former Nat in a little bit that is a pretty damning quote. And may help to explain exactly why the Nats are where they are. But in terms of what happened on Friday night, so here we had Patrick Corbin. And a few weeks ago, we talked about this. So he had those two very good starts in back-to-back fashion, a 3-1 win over the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park on June 28th, one run, eight innings, 12 strikeouts, a 3-2 10-inning loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park on July 4th, one run in seven innings. And we said, hey, good job, Patrick. But those two opponents, the Pirates and the Marlins, not exactly great offensive teams. What was going to happen over his next two outings, which were to come against the reigning, defending World Series champion Atlanta Braves? Well, uh, now those two outings are complete. Uh, The first outing was a 4-3 loss at the Braves on July 9th. Corbin in that game, four runs in six innings. Next outing was this game on Friday night, this 8-4 loss to the Braves at Nationals Park. Corbin in that game, six runs, five earned in five innings. So the competition stiffened, and Patrick Corbin went right back to being the bad pitcher he has been since the start of the 2020 season. Uh, Corbin on Friday night gave up nine hits, two home runs, and seven singles, issued two walks, did have eight strikeouts, but he overs five innings through 106 pitches. He wasn't helped out by his defense, that's for darn sure, in what ended up being a three-run Braves first. We had yet another throwing error by Luis Garcia, and that's really what ignited everything, a one-out throwing error by Garcia. He made a really bad one-hop throw to Josh Bell off a routine grounder by Dansby Swanson. You also, in the inning, after the runs were scored, had an infield single by Adam Duvall on a grounder off which Michael Franco made a high throw to Josh Bell. But you, in between the errors, had Corbin giving up multiple hits, including a one-out, two-run homer by Austin Riley. And then he gave up a run in the second inning, gave up a run in the fourth inning, and gave up a run in the fifth inning on another homer. This is a two-out solo shot by Orlando Arcia, who the Nats cannot get out to save their lives. So, yeah, Mark, I mean, we're back to Patrick Corbin not being very good. The competition got tougher, and Corbin went back to being bad. Well, and here is the... um The surest bet in baseball right now is the Atlanta Braves against Patrick Corbin. He's made nine starts against them since September of 2019. So that's still good Corbin back in September of 2019. And in those nine starts, he is 0-9 with a 728 ERA. He has not had a quality start of any type against this team in almost three years. That is just mind-blowing. But again, 
predictable. We've seen this. He faced him last time. He's faced him a bunch of times, and it's the same thing. And look, yes, his defense didn't help him out. Yes, he gave up some ground ball singles in the first inning. But you know what a good pitcher does? He gets over that. He doesn't give up a two-run homer in the middle of all that and make it worse. He finds a way to get out of it to pick up his teammates because you know what? Of the course of a season, teammates are going to pick you up. They're going to make a great diving catch on a ball that was scalded off you. It's part of the game. Remember, this used to happen to Steven Strasburg early in his career, and then he learned how to overcome that. It was a big stepping stone for him uh, when he reached his peak there for a while. Patrick Corbin has got to be better than that, no matter what's going on behind him. And right now, against that particular lineup, it's almost no chance of success. And what are you going to do? They're playing four games against the Braves. You can't jugger your rotation to uh, prevent him from facing them. He's one of the five. He's got to face them. But the results are as predictable as it gets. Yeah, and they are bad. I mean, you go back to Corbin's second start of the season, a 16-4 loss at the Braves on April 12th. Corbin in that game, six runs in two and two-thirds innings. I mean, the Braves are in your division. You face them 19 times every regular season, and the Braves have been the consistent class of the division. The Braves are the standard by which Every other National League East team is judged at this point with how frequently the team has won the division in recent years. And if you can't beat them, and if you yourself as a pitcher are particularly bad against them, good luck. You know, with Corbin, among the many things that have gone wrong for him the last few years is just the amount of hits he gives up in these games. I mean, it just, it's remarkable. Nine more hits that he gives up in this game on Friday night. He has had so many games like this over the last few years where he just gets whacked around. And yeah, I mean, sometimes a lot of them are singles, as was the case on Friday night. But he just does not miss bats, even in a game in which he does miss bats. He had eight strikeouts on Friday night, and yet he still gave up nine hits. So yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's the bizarre part of this. If if you just watched the game and said, how did Patrick Corbin pitch? And you said, man, he was, you know, it was another one of those nights. Would you have guessed that he struck out eight? No. You look up at the end of the night and see the pitching line, like, whoa, he did. He struck out eight. So it's such a reminder of just how maddening this is. There is stuff there, but he's got to be perfect with it. When he throws the perfect pitch, he gets swings and misses. He gets strikeouts. When he doesn't, he get gives up tons of hits, and there's no in-between. There's not a lot of weak contact, not a lot of pop-ups. Yes, a better defense would help him some, but that's not the only reason that this is happening. He's given up a lot of hits, as we've known for a long time, gives up a lot of homers. It's baffling. I, I don't know what else there is to say about him. I think we've covered it all over the last couple of years. He'll have a good start here and there, sure. But in the bigger picture, nothing has changed. It's the same story with him. We're not seeing any real development here. And as always, he's kind of at a loss for an answer for any of it. And Maybe the all-star break will be good for him. Take his mind, go away, not think about this for a week or so and come back and maybe he'll have some more luck next week on the West Coast. Yeah, I think it just, it is, it's maddening for a lot of reasons, but when you had those back-to-back good starts, you wanted to try to feel some level of encouragement, but you had to say to yourself, well, he did it against the Pirates in Marlins, so what does that mean? And sure enough, it's like you get slapped right across the face with it meant nothing, okay, because then he faced a better team, and it's not only that he wasn't great, you know, because it would have been one thing if he was like, okay, no, he was back to being really bad, you know, and his ERA has shot right back up of having come tumbling down, 587 now is your Patrick Corbin ERA over 19 starts this season. Uh, We had another game for the Nats offense 
on Friday night in which the offense had plenty of opportunities but just did not come through. The Nats score four runs for the game, but three of the four runs came in the bottom of the ninth. Uh, The Nats finished with eight hits, did draw six walks, but went two for 13 with runners in scoring position. You had K. Barrett Ruiz going 0 for 4 with a walk, leaving six men on base. You had Yadiel Hernandez going 0 for 3, leaving six men on base. Uh, you did have another really good game for Josh Bell, so I do want to make mention of that. Bell, again, looked really good. He got on base four times in this game on Friday night, had two doubles, a single, and a walk. Uh, Juan Soto on Friday night uh, did draw three walks, including a bases loaded walk. But Mark, like you look at how the Nats scored some of their runs, a bases loaded walk, a bases loaded hit by pitch. Good luck beating the Braves when when that's how you have to score your runs with bases loaded walks and bases loaded hit by pitches. Well, here's a story of the game from an offensive standpoint. Fourth, fifth, and sixth innings. They win a collective 0 for 9 with runners in scoring position in those three innings. That's the season in a nutshell right there. That's who they are. That's what they do. And even more so, in two of those innings, the fourth and the sixth, the inning starts with a Josh Bell double, then next is a Juan Soto walk, and then nobody else can do anything after that, aside from the bases loaded hit by pitch. I mean, that's who they are. This is what they do. And then also what they do is they make it interesting in the ninth. When they're down by a bunch, now they finally are relaxed and they start making some things happen, put pressuring on, uh, on the other team. But it's too little, too late. They keep putting themselves in these exact same positions. And it's just everything about this game to me was so predictable. We've seen this exact same thing from a pitching standpoint, defensive standpoint, offensive standpoint. We've seen this over and over and nothing changes. It's the same thing. And that for me, that made this maybe the hardest game of the year to watch. Really? Yeah. It just everything about it just felt predetermined, I guess. There was nothing new. There was nothing interesting. You know, as as a sports writer, and I hope people understand this, like I'm not rooting for the team good or bad. I'm rooting for something interesting, something different, a good story from it. And this one from the first inning on, it felt like in my mind, I knew exactly how this game was going to play out. And it was pretty close to exactly how it did play out in the end. Yeah, there definitely wasn't much drama. I guess for me, those lopsided losses, when the position player pitches, those losses to me are the worst. You know, like when Alcides Escobar takes the mound, that's when you're like, good God, like what has happened with this franchise? So I can't go that far with Friday night, but there's no question. It's hard to have real belief that anything's going to change when the team is down by so much so early. 3 nothing after 1, 4 nothing after 2, 5 nothing after 4, 6 nothing after 5. You're like, what's going to happen? Even in that ninth inning, I mean, the Nats score three runs. It felt all like all that that was doing was just making the game longer. Like, did you really think the Nats were going to come back to win the game? Like, no, nobody thought that. It just ended up adding like 25 minutes to the game time. What was it? Three hours, 32 minutes on Friday night. So, you know, everyone could have gone home 20 minutes earlier if the Nats just do what they were supposed to do and give a one, two, three bottom of the ninth. The one thing that we did get in that inning that was worth the price of admission was the Juan Soto Will Smith encounter. Because when these two go against each other, I don't care what the score is, it is high entertainment. And Juan Soto almost always ends up on top. And if everybody didn't see what he did after drawing the bases loaded walk and and Brian Snitker has to pull Smith out of the game because he couldn't finish the ninth inning, Juan Soto waving goodbye to him and giving like the crocodile tears like wham, 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 sorry, poor crybaby. That was good stuff. The Braves own the Nationals in every possible way except for this one area, Juan Soto owns Will Smith, and that at least is entertaining right now. 
I don't know how much of this is a part of why Soto did that, but to add a little theater to make things entertaining in a season in which very little is entertaining, I certainly respect that and appreciate that from Juan Soto. Like you're trying to put on some kind of a show for the home crowd on a Friday night at Nationals Park. So that was pretty funny to see that. Treat the whole family to a fun night of baseball with the Bethesda Big Train at Shirley Povich Field. Big Train Baseball is the perfect mix of small-town charm and big-league talent right here in Bethesda's Cabin John Regional Park. Visit BigTrain.org forward slash tickets to reserve your seats for tonight's game and all other home games throughout July. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Corbin rocks and kicks. 2-2 on the way. Swinging a ground ball, slowly hit toward short. Garcia charges in, has it. His throw is low and bounces past Bell. And Swanson around first, heading for second. He'll make it without a play as Bell goes over to retrieve it. The carom off the railing and back out onto the grass. As, again, somewhat of a routine play. But Garcia, sensing the speed of Swanson, rushed it and threw that ball straight into the ground. And Bell, diving to try and backhand it. Could not come up with it. It's an error on Garcia. It's his ninth error in 41 games. I mentioned this latest Luis Garcia throwing error. This really is a thing, the throwing with him. We have another instance on Friday night of just him being really bad. Now, he had a bad night at the plate, too. He's cooled off a little bit as a batter here lately. But uh, Garcia on Friday night, 0 for 5 with two strikeouts, left three men on base. And he had what I thought was one of his more egregious throwing errors here so again, three-run Braves first, one-out throwing error by Garcia, really bad one-hop throw uh, of the ball off what was a routine grounder by Dansby Swanson. And that, to me, was a thing. Some of these throwing errors have come on maybe difficult plays or uh, above-average plays in terms of difficulty. This was pretty routine, and he just made a terrible throw to Josh Bell who you feel like is going to wind up on the injured list at some point trying to catch one of these Luis Garcia throws because Bell has to go flopping all over the place. But there really just was no excuse for that throw to be as bad as it was. No, it was sloppy in every possible way. And it was one of those, as he 
picked up the ball and he starts shuffling his feet and winding up. You could almost feel it coming because there was nothing smooth about this. It was, you know, step A, let's move my feet. Step two, let's bring the ball back. Step three, let's try to throw it. It was not at all smooth, which is the thing that they need from him. It needs to become muscle memory. Instead, it's almost like you could see the wheels spinning in his head as he's trying to make the throw and do it the proper way. And that ends up backfiring on him. It's his ninth error in 41 games this year. Seven of them have been throwing errors. And like you said, some of them are on tougher plays, but a lot of these do have to do with just poor fundamentals. They can work with him all they want, but there's a legitimate question here. We've said it from the beginning. Is he a shortstop or not? The evidence so far suggests that he is not. I don't know if and when that change will be made, but at the moment, he has not given us a lot of reason to believe that this is going to get a whole lot better and that he ultimately is a quality big league shortstop from a defensive standpoint. So that's what I wanted to get to. I am fine with keeping him at shortstop the rest of the year, as painful as it may be. You have nothing to lose at this point. Do you think the Nats feel that way, or do you think they would pull the plug on him at shortstop at some point this season and move him, say, to second base? I think it depends on just how bad it gets. If they worry that this would somehow hurt his development and and become a real mental block for him, that it could affect him at second base as well, then you don't want to let it get to that point. And then I think it also depends on what moves, if any, do they still make? Is Cesar Hernandez still here the rest of the year? Is he playing second base? If Somehow they get something for him in a trade and second base opens up. I could see them making the move. But then who plays shortstop? Is it Alcides Escobar? Is it who? I don't know. Lucius Fox? Like who else is there at this point? So there's that. So that's why I said I think it's up in the air. uh, And there's a fine balance there between doing what you think is best for Luis Garcia and his long-term development and not hurting him in any way versus letting him take his lumps. And then, you know, you get to the end of the season and now you've decided – do we think this is worth continuing with, or do we think it's just time to make the move permanently across to the other side of second base? Nats bullpen on Friday night gave up a few runs. Three Nats relievers combined to allow two runs in four innings. Erasmo Ramirez, one run in two innings. Carl Edwards Jr. did toss a perfect top of the eighth, including striking out Ronald Acuna Jr. on four pitches for the second out. Edwards looked good. And then Kyle Finnegan pitched in this game. It's so odd how things can play out. Kyle Finnegan pitched in the top of the ninth. He gave up a run. He gave up a home run. He gave up a two-out solo shot to Adam Duvall for an 8-1 Braves lead. But here you have Kyle Finnegan now. In theory, the Nats' new closer with Tanner Rainey almost certainly done for the season. And yet Finnegan gets brought into this game in like the Paolo Espino role of like the ultimate mop-up assignment. And I can only assume this was just to get Kyle Finnegan some work. In case you kind of had missed this, this appearance for Finnegan on Friday night, just his second appearance in a game over the Nats' last eight games, we have not seen a lot of Kyle Finnegan lately. So it's odd. He's the new closer, and yet he's used in this like ultimate mop-up spot on Friday night. Well, this just in now, when you've lost eight in a row, there are not going to be a lot of high-leverage situations to pitch in late in games. And so sometimes you just have to get the guy work and put him in there. And yeah, it's not ideal at all. And You know, the worst thing would be if they now, the next two days are actually in a position to close out a game and maybe he can only go in one of the two because he's suddenly been overworked. But you can't keep waiting for something to happen that's maybe not going to happen, especially you're down to the end of the first half of the season. You got to get him into a game before this all ends. You probably need to get him into two games before the end of the first half. So that was just one of those you have to do. And, you know, you hope it doesn't have any 
long-lasting ramifications, but I don't even want to read too much into giving up the home run. That's such a different situation for him to be in. He's just going to go in there, try to throw hard and throw over the plate, and if the guy hits it, then he does, and that's what happened. Yeah. He has, by the way, now given up seven homers this season. Tanner Rainey's given up five for comparison's sake. That is an issue for Finnegan. He does give up homers, and uh, he gave up another one on Friday night. So with the Nats bullpen, uh, we did have some news prior to the game you know, we, we have all these losses we keep talking about. And I feel like after every game discussion, which inevitably is a loss discussion, we have like some injury news that's bad to discuss with the Nats. But look, people, we don't write the news. OK, we're just talking about what's happening here. But Sean Doolittle now is done for the season. Now, nobody is shocked by this, but we on Friday afternoon learned that Doolittle is, in fact, done for the year. He's going to be undergoing an internal brace procedure as opposed to Tommy John surgery to repair a tear in his left UCL. Uh, The Nats on April 20th put Doolittle on the 10-day injured list with what the team termed a left elbow sprain. Uh, Then we on May 4th had the transferring of Doolittle to the 60-day IL. We also on that day learned that Doolittle had received a platelet-rich plasma injection, a PRP injection in the left elbow. So he got that injection. We were told he was not going to be able to throw again until June. It never felt great like him coming back to pitch this season, but you didn't know. Remember, he did pitch well early in this year. Over his first six games of the season, five and a third scoreless innings, uh, five and a third walkless innings, in fact, six strikeouts. He retired 16 of the 17 batters he faced. So I guess the good news is no Tommy John. I read your story on Doolittle. Spring training next year, he could be ready. Now, whether that's with the Nats, who the heck knows? So I don't know. I guess considering the circumstances could have been worse, but obviously there is that you know bottom line here of here's another guy for the Nats, done for the season. Yeah, so let's go through the timeline like you sort of mentioned there and, and say this. I think you called an elbow sprain that officially what he had, but a sprain, for those who don't know, is a tear of a ligament. It's just there are degrees of it. And in his case all along, it was seen as a partial tear not a full tear. If you have the full tear of the UCL ligament, you're having Tommy John, no question about it. It also depends on the location of it within that ligament. And so he knew, doctors told him back then that you could do this procedure. And what this is, I didn't really ever know about this one. I guess Rich Hill, the veteran lefty, had it a few years ago and has come back well from it. It involves, instead of Tommy John surgery, in which they take a tendon from another part of your body and create a new elbow ligament out of it, essentially. They give you a brand new ligament. This is different. This is essentially trying to repair and regenerate the ligament that you have because it hasn't been torn enough that you have to lose it altogether. It's a relatively new thing. Not a lot of guys have had it, but there's at least a little bit of success with it. The recovery time's a lot quicker. It's five to six months as opposed to 12 to 18 months with Tommy John. So, In April and May, they knew this was a possibility. But because of that timeline for recovery, they said, let's try the PRP treatment. Let's try to rehab this. See what you can do. We're going to get to a point probably in late July where either it's working and you're going to try to come back and pitch. Or if it's not, now we have to make a decision. Because if you wait any longer and still have that surgery, now you are jeopardizing spring training of next year. So, he was throwing, it was a week ago in Philadelphia, we talked to him, he threw off the mound, he was pretty encouraged by it. He still, you know, needed to work on stuff, but he felt physically good. But as he kept doing it, he said he felt the same soreness in his elbow that he had back in April. And to him, that was a red flag. And okay, I got to address this. They looked at it again in the MRI. They didn't find anything new. There's no further tear of it or anything like that. But you're at a point in the season now where you say, is it worth it to try to come back and pitch through this? 
knowing you might hurt it worse and now you're causing the much more severe surgery? Or do you just say, hey, let's shut it down now. Let's do this procedure. If everything goes well, he's ready to come back and pitch next year. Who knows? You know, there's no guarantees at all with this, but he's 35 years old and he was determined. He said, if anything, the last three months have convinced him that he's not ready to call it quits and that he does want to come back. Hopefully with the Nationals, there's no guarantee because he's a free agent, but he wants to have this done and thinks it could sustain his career for several more years. We'll see. Long way to go, but he seems at peace with that decision and feels like this is the best solution for him right now. It's not the worst case scenario. It's just something that he hopes will now allow him to come back and pitch next year. Matt signed Doolittle in March, a one-year, $1.5 million deal. And, you know, I do think even if you're a rebuilding team, the bullpen is kind of on its own island. I don't think there's a problem with having veteran relievers in your bullpen because bullpens are year-to-year and their complexions change on a yearly basis. So I think, you know, if you can have Doolittle back and you don't have many other options and he costs you nothing, I don't think it's like the end of the world if the Nats do bring him back. And I guess from his perspective, look, it's worth it to try everything you can not to have Tommy John, right? Given his age, you know, he has not been a very good pitcher in recent years either. That's another part of all this. So you want to try to avoid that surgery if you can. And, you know, maybe he's found something here that kind of can be the best of both worlds where you adequately address the ailment, but you don't have to miss as much time as he would have to miss with Tommy John. So to me, the most interesting thing with the Nats over the last 24, 48 hours is this Austin Voth quote that's gotten a good bit of attention. So on Thursday, uh, we had the publication of a piece by ESPN MLB insider Jesse Rogers about the Orioles, uh, who had won 10 consecutive games before losing at the Tampa Bay Rays on Friday night. Uh, The title of the piece, How the Orioles, Yes, the Baltimore Orioles, Became the Hottest Team in MLB. And the piece included the following quote, from former Nats pitcher Austin Voth, who is now with the O's. Uh, The O's on June 7th claimed Voth off waivers from the Nats. Quote, I was kind of blown away by all the data that they have here. The video guys and how they can break down stats and pitches and individually things for each pitcher, that was big for me. End quote. And I think if you're a Nats fan or a Nats observer, it's impossible to see that quote and not think about, well, What does that say about the Nats? Because one of the things going on with Voth is he has been, in a small sample size, actually pretty good for the Orioles. Uh, Austin Voth, as of the publication of this article for the O's, eight games, including five starts. They've been using him as like, not an opener, but they'll do these like bullpen type games and Voth will start and pitch like three or four innings. So eight games, five starts, 21 and a third innings, ERA of 380. Not outstanding or anything like that but a lot better than what he had been doing for the Nats. Vote this season for the Nats, ERA of 10-13 over 18 and two-thirds innings. Vote over four-plus seasons with the Nats, 2018 to 2022, ERA of 570 over 181 and two-thirds innings. We know that the Nats are not known to be like all in on analytics. They're they're certainly not anti-analytics, but nobody views them as like one of the teams at the forefront of the movement or anything like that. We know the Orioles have gone all in on analytics. And when you see something, something like this, both having been so bad for the Nats and at least initially being good for the O's, coupled with other relievers and other pitchers who have been with the Nats, struggled, then gone elsewhere and done well. See Blake Trinan, see like Trevor Rosenthal, if you want to throw him into the mix, maybe even Lucas Giolito, although that's a little bit of a different conversation. You know, I think a quote like that does stand out. What did you make of what Voth had to say? Um, I, <laughs> what I would say is 
so far with them, obviously he's pitched much better than what we saw through the first, you know, two plus months of this year when he was here, when he was pretty awful. Certainly there at the end, it was it was painful to watch him pitch. What I would also say is, like you pointed out, it's a small sample. You want to see more. This is in a new league. Maybe hitters haven't seen him before. Let's see where it goes from there. I think we've always known with him, and that's part of the reason he stuck around as long as he did, that there was something there. He would have his moments. He'd have a stretch of games. He said, boy, Vote looks pretty good right now. His stuff is pretty good. And then he would have these blow-ups where he'd just get hit really hard. And looking at his stats of what he's done in Baltimore so far, I was surprised that there's not a huge difference. The strikeout numbers are about the same. The home run total has gone way down. The walks were a little bit down, but not a lot. He's just not giving up hits the way that he was when he was here. Now, is that a data reason? Is that learning how to pitch better from a different organization? I don't know. I don't know if we've seen enough to know that or not. But anytime someone is with this team for any length of time and is not succeed and is let go and then has some success elsewhere, you can't help but look at the Nationals and say, what are they not doing to get the most out of their players? And that can be at the minor league level. It can be at the major league level. A lot of different reasons for all that. It can be analytics. It can also just be straight up coaching. It can be old school stuff as well. So I'm interested to see how he does from here on out, of course. And as we've talked about beyond him, just as an organization, especially from the pitching standpoint, how many guys have we seen in recent years where you said, since the World Series year, basically, have we seen where you said, they came to the Nationals and they got better. You know, there have not been very many of those. Or guys who are here and are struggling and say, oh, they figured him out. They fixed him. There has not been very much of that. Who's to blame for that? I don't know the answer. I honestly don't. Except to say that they need to be better at all of these things. They need to be better at drafting. They need to be better at developing them in the minor leagues. They need to be better at coaching them at the major league level. And they need to use analytics to the best of their abilities to help bring out the best in them. Yeah. You know, the word analytics, I almost don't like using it anymore because it is overused. It is often misinterpreted, but it's a shorthanded way of referring to, of course, you know, data and information and also the application of data and information because every team now has access to all of this data and information. Like, I think the StatCast stuff is a perfect example. All major league teams now have all of this stat cast data that is provided to them. And what has become the real arms race is what do you do with that data? How do you interpret it? How do you make it work for you? You know, what do you use it for? And like, that's a big deal. I also think this, you know, when you think about the Nats, right? And you think about what is, I think, their biggest issue that we've talked about so much, right? Drafting and developing players. The fear that it's impossible not to have is that there is something systemically wrong with the organization. Like, it's not just, well, they've made some bad draft picks. You know what I mean? It feels more like there's something wrong here that nobody gets better. There's something wrong here that there hasn't been a single non-first round hit in a draft in seemingly forever. Like, what is up with that? Why does that keep happening? And so when you look at all the good teams, right, and you see so many of them are so in on analytics, you have to say, well, is that the Nats problem? that they just aren't as into this stuff as they should be. And that, you know, a guy like Mike Rizzo with a scouting background was maybe great at turning around an organization in 2009 and 2010 and 2011, but maybe in 2022 with things very different, maybe he's not the right guy. I also would say this in Mike's defense. 
Maybe he wants to do more with analytics and he's not getting the okay from above. You know, maybe he wants a better staffed analytics department and he hasn't gotten the green light on that. You know, it's interesting to me. The Nats this season, my understanding for the first time, have a full-time member of the analytics department traveling with the team, this guy, David Higgins. And, you know, kind of a big deal has been made about that. And it makes me laugh. Like, you should have been doing that for years. That shouldn't be something you start doing in 2022. That's something you should have started doing like seven, eight, nine years ago. So if they're only now having someone who's a part of their analytics department traveling with the team full time, where else is this team lacking? You know, what else is going wrong with this team when it comes to doing what so many of the great teams now do, which is not only interpret the data, but apply the data, communicate the data to players, you know, like your front office can think these things. Do you communicate these philosophies and ideas accurately to your players? So there's a lot we don't know. So I don't want to crush them for this. And again, you know, Austin Voth is not the ultimate arbiter of like the Nats baseball operations department. Okay. Like we all get that. But man, it's hard to read that quote and not ask questions and not wonder. And again, I just get back to this thing of like, is there something systemically wrong with the Nets that they're in the position they're in? That it's not just a bunch of bad luck and bad breaks and injuries to Steven Strasburg, like that there's more here than just those things. Yeah, I think it's going to be a couple of years before we have a better answer to that. What I'll say is, and you kind of pointed out, they went into this season having made some what they believe were significant changes, both to analytics and player development in adding personnel in doing more. And that's an indictment of where they were prior to that point, of course, in terms of their commitment to it financially, personnel-wise, implementing it, you name it. The problem is these are not things that just have an immediate overnight impact. It takes some time, especially when you're trying to implement it across the entire organization from the top down. So I think it's going to be a couple of years until we start to have a sense of the difference that it may or may not make. As long as Mike Rizzo is the general manager, this is still going to be a probably scouting first organization. This is not Ivy League by the numbers running of a baseball operation that we see in other places. And look, we've seen both sides of that work and be successful. There's no guarantee on one or the other. And the best ones are honestly the ones that integrate them both together. The Nationals have tried to do more of that integration. I think they're certainly in a better place than they used to be, but there's still a long way to go. And because of the state of the organization, as we talk about with everything with them, they're kind of in a position now where it's hard to evaluate them in the moment. And we have to say, check back in 2024. (laughs) I hate to say that, but that's kind of where we are. And how can you adequately judge where they are in all this until they've had an opportunity to see whether this bears any fruit or not? Yeah, and that's tough because you have other teams and other teams with big money behind them, the Yankees and the Dodgers constantly building up their analytic staffs and doing who knows what. You know, these teams, they have all kinds of proprietary information and proprietary stats that they come up with. And it's like, it is an arms race. And so if you're already behind the eight ball and you're not playing catch up and doing more than those other teams in order to catch up with those teams, I think that that puts you in a really tough spot. The other thing that stands out too is this. So the Orioles were a complete mess. And in 2018, they sold off the way the Nats sold off last year. And among the trades that were made were trading Zach Britton to the Yankees and Kevin Gaussman and Darren O'Day to the Braves. And I can't remember who said this. I want to say it was Gaussman. It might have been Gaussman and Britton. But one or more of these pitchers said about their new teams, boy, they do things differently here. 
They use analytics. I'm not used to this. And I'll never forget reading that and saying to myself, boy, that is such an indictment of the Orioles. And sure enough, the O's were a mess. They weren't all in on analytics. They had to tear down everything and build it back up. Tim Shovers is uh, pointing out it was Kevin Gaussman. That does make sense because Gaussman's a starter. And so it shows you, you know, from an O's perspective, right, they were the team four years ago that former players said, boy, they do things wrong. Now they're the team that others say do things right. And so you can only hope that the Nats get to that point because that's what you want to be. You want to be the team that stands out to players to when the players come to you, they say, wow, you guys are impressive the way you do things. It doesn't feel good when a guy leaves you and says, wow, this new team does things that I'm not used to, you know, and, and even though it's Austin Vogt, I understand that it doesn't feel good as a Nats fan to read and hear something like that. No, you're right. But here's the other thing. And I, it occurs to me, I think back to let's go 2017, 2018, 2019 around the Nationals when they would bring somebody in, they would acquire, especially a veteran who helped them win. Ultimately, you heard them say how impressed they were with the organization in a different way, the opposite of what you're talking about. No, it wasn't because they were good with numbers and analytics, but they really appreciated the culture that had been established here, the way that everyone was treated, the importance given to veterans and experience. And they felt like that was eye-opening compared to maybe where they had been in the past. And so it's interesting to see how it can apply to different franchises in different ways at different points in your history. Where they're going now, it does need to flip into a different direction. That's not the way it's going to be anymore. But the other thing that's so different and, you know, this is just fact. It's the way it is. The Orioles, at that point when they overhauled it all, had not won anything in a long time. The Nationals, when they decided to overhaul everything, had just very recently won everything. And so when you have the same person in charge who has had success doing it one way, it's going to be very tough to say, well, we have to now do this a totally different way than the method that I already saw gave us a World Series title just a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they always, they had that run. They made the playoffs three times in five years, but they certainly did not do what the Nats did, which is win a World Series championship. No doubt about that. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. It's a multi-layered topic for sure. And like we always say with this stuff, there's stuff behind the scenes we don't know. But I think as a Nats fan, it's hard to see that quote and not uh, think about some things. You can email us to NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the Nats Chat Podcast. Email Tim Shovers at NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And just in case you don't feel bad enough about things with the Nats, we're going to continue right now or look back at the month that changed everything for the Nats, July 2021. And looky, looky, what game we get to look back upon on this installment of the podcast, the gunfire game, July 17th and July 18th of 2021, a 10-4 gunshots suspended loss for the Nats to the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park. Uh, This was a game after a 24-8 loss for the Nats to the Padres at Nationals Park. This series against the Padres in the middle of July to begin the Nats post-All-Star break portion of the season really was what made you say to yourself, man, there's something wrong here with all the things that came up during this series. But that gunshot suspended game 
was something else. Uh, the gunfire involved a series of gunshots fired on the 1500 block of South Capitol Street Southwest. Police said that people in two cars exchanged gunfire. Police said that there were three victims. One victim was a woman attending the game. The other two victims were men involved in the gunfire. And uh, we recorded the podcast with Mark in his car in the garage at uh, Nationals Park as uh, we were trying to navigate all the chaos here. But uh, anyway, that was some night. That was some month for the Nats last July. So we give you that look back right now. And we thank you for listening to the Nats Chat Podcast. We are taping this Saturday night, July 17th at around 11 p.m. I am in my basement studio. Mark is in his car in the parking garage at Nationals Park, where we have had a night to end all nights. Uh, We hope we never have to talk about something like this again. But the Nationals game against the San Diego Padres has been suspended in the middle of the sixth inning due to gunshots being fired outside of Nationals Park. Now, as things stand, as we're taping this per the D.C. Police Department, there are four gunshot victims. We don't know much, though, beyond that. Thankfully, Mark is safe. Mark, I can't imagine what this evening has been like. How are you? I'm doing fine, Al. Thanks for asking and appreciate you know everyone who on Twitter and texting and otherwise was asking uh, how I and the others in the press box were doing. I can tell you that while there was a brief period of one or two minutes, I would say, where there was some confusion and a little bit of fear up there for all of us that something may be going on inside the stadium, it quickly became clear that what had happened took place outside and that we were never really in any danger and that the vast majority of people inside the stadium were never in any danger. So that's the good news. But that was certainly a first and not something you ever want to experience. And we'll we'll get through it all here. But I can tell you, I heard the shots pretty clearly. And I, I immediately thought to myself, that sounded like gunshots. And then it was about, from that point, about a five minute period, I'm gonna guess, where there was a lot of confusion, a lot of panic from some people before it all sort of settled down. And yeah, a strange night to be sure. And you know, we just hope that everyone ultimately is okay. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.